The New World Order. An ominous term in many eyes. Most people know that they don't want to live in a pod and eat bugs. But what would a good government look like? Greetings mortals, and a top of the morning to y'all. I'm your host Simon, welcome back to the Library of Gnosis. Privacy Matters, NordVPN, link in the description. One person who carefully examined the idea of good government is Plato and his Republic, written around 375 BC, where he explores the concept of a city-state ruled by philosophers. Plato argued that the ideal state, one which ensures the maximum possible happiness for all its citizens, could only be brought into being by a ruler possessed of absolute knowledge, obtained through philosophical study. The philosopher king is a hypothetical ruler in whom political skill is combined with philosophical knowledge. Several historical figures, including Alexander the Great and Marcus Aurelius, have been described by ancient and modern writers as embodying the philosopher king ideal. The Republic is a Socratic dialogue in which the character of Socrates is made a mouthpiece for Plato's ideas. In the first two books, Socrates is challenged to give a definition of justice, which he proposes to accomplish by imagining how an ideal city-state would function. He suggests that the ideal state would be ruled over by a specially trained guardian class, in whom a spiritual nature would be combined with a philosophical disposition. Socrates goes on to discuss various aspects of life within the state. In the fifth book, Socrates' interlocutors ask him whether the state he is describing could ever exist in reality. He replies that this could only happen on one condition. Quote, Until philosophers are kings, or the kings and princes of this world have the spirit and power of philosophy, cities will never have rest from their evils. No, no the human race, as I believe, and then only will this or state have a possibility of life and behold the light of day. Socrates clarifies this comment by distinguishing between true and false philosophers. The true philosopher or lover of wisdom is one who loves, quote, the truth in each thing, as opposed to those who only love the things themselves. This is a reference to Plato's belief that all particular things are only shadows of eternal forms. Only the philosopher, therefore, is qualified to rule, as only the philosopher has knowledge of the absolute truth, and is able to apply this knowledge for the good of the state. Socrates next outlines the qualities which the ideal philosopher must possess, including truthfulness, temperance, justice, and a good memory. It is observed, however, that this ideal is in sharp contrast to reality, as many philosophers are, quote, utter rogues, and the best of them are generally considered to be useless. Socrates explains the poor reputation of philosophers through the metaphor of the ship of state, in which he compares Athenian democracy to a group of mutinous sailors vying with one another for control over the helm of a ship. The sailors, having themselves no knowledge of the art of navigation, Deny that this is a necessary qualification for a pilot, and heap abuse on anyone who does not help them achieve their goals. Socrates then acknowledges that many philosophers are indeed corrupt, but attributes this to the fact that they are brought up in a corrupt society. Only in the ideal state will a philosopher be able to achieve his full potential, quote, and be the savior of his country as well as of himself. Having returned to the subject of the ideal state, Socrates elaborates 
on the way in which the guardians would be educated, in order to lead them to a full and total knowledge of the forms. This education will last 35 years, and prospective guardians must spend a further 15 years occupying lesser offices in order to gain experience of life. At the age of 50, they will be qualified to rule. As philosophers, however, they will no longer desire to engage in politics. They will do so only from a sense of duty. Socrates concludes this portion of the dialogue by reaffirming that the ideal state is capable of being realized, but only if one or more philosophers were to somehow come into power in a city. He further suggests that if this were to happen, the quickest way for a philosopher king to bring the perfect state into existence would be to send away every inhabitant over the age of 10, so as to be able to bring up the younger generation in accordance with philosophical principles. Aristotle in his politics criticized many aspects of Plato's political theory, and sets out his own ideas about how a perfect city would be governed. Rather than proposing, as Plato does, the establishment of a ruling class, Aristotle argues that all citizens should take an equal share in the administration of the city. However, in one passage, Aristotle does write that if one or more people happen to be found who far excel their fellow citizens in virtue, it would be against the natural order for such people to be subject to the rule of their inferiors, and they should therefore be made, quote, kings in their state of life. While Aristotle here comes close to endorsing the philosopher-king ideal, he does not expressly state that this virtuous leader should be skilled in philosophy, and his writings more usually draw a sharp distinction between the theoretical wisdom of a philosopher and the political wisdom of a ruler. When politics was translated into Latin in the 13th century, it became the foundational text for political philosophy in the Christian world. And Plato's ideas were marginalized in favor of an Aristotelian separation of temporal and spiritual authority. Islamic scholars, on the other hand, were heavily influenced by Plato's Republic, finding in the philosopher king a counterpart to the traditional figure of the lawgiver prophet. Al-Farabi, for example, followed Plato closely, writing that the ideal state was that which most carefully attended to the spiritual education of his citizens, and that its ruler must therefore have a highly developed understanding of the purpose of human existence. Where Al-Farabi departed from Plato was in asserting that the founder of the perfect state must not only be a philosopher, but also a prophet, as the perfect law could only come from God. The founder's successors need not be prophets, but they must still be philosophers, able to correctly interpret and apply the received law. The translation into Hebrew of the works of Al-Farabi and Averos saw the concept of the philosopher king enter into Jewish political thought. Biblical figures such as Moses, Abraham and Solomon were held up as examples of ideal rulers. With Plato's theory undergoing further distortions in order to meet the needs of the Jewish philosophers. The popularity of the idea finally declined during the 17th century, as influential authors such as Baruch Spinoza began to formulate more secular political philosophies modeled on the works of Machiavelli. Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius is also frequently cited as a fulfillment of the philosopher-king ideal. 
Ancient sources such as the Historia Augusta call him, quote, the philosopher and praise him for the clemency of his reign, while his Stoic tome Meditations is still revered as a literary monument to a philosophy of service and duty. It appears from the Republic that Plato did not think it impossible for his ideal state to be established in reality, and he did make one notable attempt to educate a ruler in the principles of philosophy. In 367 BCE, Dionysius II came to power in Syracuse, Sicily, under the supervision of his uncle Dion, who was a friend and disciple of Plato. Dion invited Plato to Syracuse to serve as an advisor to Dionysius, and Plato accepted. However, he probably hoped for nothing more than to exercise a moderating influence on the tyrant. He is unlikely to have believed that he could transform Dionysius into a true philosopher king. In the event, Dionysius proved an unwilling student, and nothing came of the endeavor. Later, Dion attempted to seize power for himself, and was ultimately assassinated. In his possibly spurious seventh letter, Plato regretted Dion's death, and wrote that if he had gotten supreme power, he would then, by every means in his power, have ordered aright the lives of his fellow citizens by suitable and excellent laws. And the thing next in order, which he would have set his heart to accomplish, was to found again all the states of Sicily and make them free from the barbarians. If these things had been accomplished by a man who was just and brave and temperate and a philosopher, the same belief with regard to virtue would have been established among the majority which, if Dionysius had been won over, would have been established. I might also say, among all mankind, and would have given them salvation. No king but Christ is a somewhat common saying. Christ the king is a title of Jesus in Christianity, referring to the idea of a kingdom of God, where the Christ is described as seated at the right hand of God. Many Christian denominations consider the kingly office of Christ to be one of the threefold offices. Christ is a prophet, priest, and a king. In the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel proclaims to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Outside of the Gospels, the first epistles to Timothy 6.14.15 explicitly applies the phrase of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, adapting the Panatechus declaration, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of Lords. O oh, Jesus Christ! In the book of Revelation, it is declared that the Lamb is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 17:14. Pope Pius XI First encyclica was Ubi Arcanu Dei Concioli of December 1922, 
Writing in the aftermath of World War I, Pius noted, while there has been a cessation of hostilities, there was no true peace. He deplored the rise of class division and unbridled nationalism, and held that true peace can only be found under the kingship of Christ as the Prince of Peace. Quote, For Jesus Christ reigns over the minds of individuals by his teachings, in their hearts by his love, in each one's life by living according to his law, and the imitating of his example. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6 Christ's kingship was addressed again in the encyclica Quas Primas of Pope Pius XI, published in 1925. Michael D. Graney called it, quote, possibly one of the most misunderstood and ignored encyclicals of all time, end quote. The pontiff's encyclical quotes with approval of Cyril of Alexandria, noting that Jesus' kingship was given to him by the Father and was not obtained by violence. Quote, Christ, he says, has dominion over all creatures, a dominion not seized by violence, nor usurped, but by his essence and by nature, end quote. He also referenced Leo the 13th, 1899, Anum Sacrum, wherein Leo relates the kingship of Christ to the devotion to his sacred heart, which he will bring about the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6:15. In November 1926, the pontiff gave his assent to the establishment of the first church dedicated to Christ under the title of King. The Church of Our Lord, Christ the King, a promising young parish in the neighborhood of Mount Lookout, Cincinnati, which had previously been operating out of a pharmacy located in the neighborhood square, soon began to flourish. In May 1927, a proper sanctuary and neighborhood icon was consecrated. Designed by the famed church architect Edward J. Schultz, the building exemplifies the designer's signature marriage of Art Deco decoration and brutalistic construction, principally arranged to mimic ancient liturgical spaces of early Christianity. To understand good government, perhaps we should look at the highest good. How does God arrange his rule? The concept of divine assembly or council is attested to in the archaic Sumerian, Akkadian, or Babylonian ancient Egyptian, Babylonian, Canaanite, Israelite, Celtic, ancient Greek and ancient Roman, and Nordic pantheons. Ancient Egyptian literature reveals the existence of a quote, synod of the gods. Some of our most complete descriptions of the activities of the divine assembly are found in the literature of Mesopotamia. Their assembly of the gods, headed by the high god Anu, would meet to address various concerns. In the Hebrew Bible, there are multiple descriptions of Yahweh presiding over a great assembly of heavenly hosts. Some interpret these assemblies as an example of divine counsel. 
The Old Testament description of the Divine Assembly also suggests that this metaphor for the organization of the Divine World was consistent with that of Mesopotamia and Canaan. One difference, however, should be noted. In the Old Testament, the identities of the members of the Assembly are far more obscure than those found in other descriptions of these groups, as in their polytheistic environment. Israelite writers sought to express both the uniqueness and the superiority of their God Yahweh. The book of Psalms, Psalm 82.1 states, God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly. He judges amongst the gods, Elohim. The meaning of the two occurrences of Elohim has been debated by scholars, with some suggesting both words refer to Yahweh while others propose that the God of Israel rules over divine assembly of other gods or angels. Some translations of the passages render God Elohim stands in the congregation of the mighty to judge the heart as God Elohim. The Hebrew is Bekerev Elohim in the midst of the gods, and the words Kerev if it were in the plural would mean internal organs. Later in this psalm the word gods is used. In the King James Version, Psalm 82.6 I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Instead of gods, another version has godlike beings. But here again, the word is Elohim. In the book of Kings, 1 Kings 22.19 The prophet Micaiah has a vision of Yahweh seated among quote, the whole host of heaven. Standing on his right and on his left, he asks who will entice Ahab and a spirit volunteers. This has been interpreted as an example of a divine counsel. The first two chapters of the book of Job describe the sons of God assembling in the presence of Yahweh, like, quote, multitudes of heaven. The term sons of God defies certain interpretation. This assembly has been interpreted by some as another example of divine counsel. Others translate sons of God as angels, and thus argue that this is not a divine counsel because angels are God's creation and not deities. The role of the divine assembly as a conceptual part of the background of Hebrew prophecy is clearly displayed in two descriptions of prophetic involvement in the heavenly council. In 1 Kings 22.19 Micaiah is allowed to see God, Elohim, in action in the heavenly decision regarding the fate of Ahab. Isaiah 6 depicts a situation in which the prophet himself takes the role of the messenger of the assembly and message of the prophet is thus commissioned by Yahweh. The depiction here illustrates this important aspect of conceptual background of prophetic authority. I would like to read a bit from the preface of the Emerald Tablet of Toth, the Atlantean. Translation by Doriel The history of the tablets translated in the following pages is strange and beyond the belief of modern scientists. Their antiquity is stupendous, dating back some 36,000 years BC. The writer is Toth, an Atlantean priest-king, who founded a colony in ancient Egypt after the sinking of the mother country. He was the builder of the Great Pyramid of Giza erroneously attributed to Sheops. In it, he incorporated his knowledge of the ancient wisdom and also securely secreted records and instruments of ancient Atlantis. 
For some 16,000 years, he ruled the ancient race of Egypt, from approximately 52,000 BC to 36,000 BC. At that time, the ancient Borbus race among which he and his followers had settled had been raised to a high degree of civilization. Toth was an immortal, that is, he had conquered death, passing only when he willed, and even then, not through death. His vast wisdom made him ruler over the various Atlantean colonies, including the ones in South and Central America. When the time came for him to leave Egypt, he erected the Great Pyramid over the entrance to the Great Halls of Amenti, placed in his records, and appointed guards for his secrets from among the highest of his people. In later times, the descendants of these guards became the pyramid priests, by which Toth was deified as the god of wisdom. The recorder, by those in the age of darkness which followed to his passing. In legend, the halls of Amenti became the underworld, the halls of the gods, where the soul passed after death for judgment. During later ages, the ego of Toth passed into the bodies of men in the manner described in the tablets. End quote. In Toth, we find the archetype of the philosopher king and the image of Christ. Toth is both a prophet, priest, and a king. A priest king. In case you were wondering why I'm bringing up Toth, then if you haven't already seen my video on Hermes as the Messiah, I will put a card up top. I, Toth, the Atlantean, master of mysteries, keeper of records, Mighty king, magician, living from generation to generation, being about to pass into the halls of Amenti, set down for the guidance of those that are to come after, these records of the mighty wisdom of great Atlantis. In the great city of Kior, on the island of Undal, in a time far past, I began this incarnation. Not as the little men of the present age did the mighty ones of Atlantis live, and die, but rather from eon to eon did they renew their life in the halls of Amenti, where the river of life flows eternally onward. A hundred times ten I have descended the dark way that led into the light, and as many times have I ascended from the darkness into the light, my strength and power renewed. Now for a time I descend, and the men of Kem shall know me no more. But in a time yet unborn will I rise again, mighty and potent, requiring an accounting of those left behind me. Emerald Tablet 1 Clear is the pathway to he who has wisdom. Open the door to the kingdom of light. Pour forth thy flame as the sun of the morning. Shut out the darkness and live in the day. Take thee, O man, as a part of thy being, the seven who are, but are not as they seem. Open, O man, have I my wisdom. Follow the path and the way I have led. Masters of wisdom, son of the morning light, and life to the children of men. Tablet 3 Oft I dream of buried Atlantis, lost in the ages that have passed into night. Eon to eon thou existed in beauty, a light shining through the darkness of night. Mighty in power, ruling the earthborn, 
Lord of the earth in Atlantis' day, King of the nations, Master of wisdom, Light through Suntal, Keeper of the way, Dwelt in his temple, The master of Unal, Light of the earth in Atlantis' day. Master, he from a cycle beyond us, Living in bodies as one among men, Not as the earthborn, He from beyond us, Son of a cycle, Advanced beyond man. Know ye, O man, that Horlet, the master, was never one with the children of men. For in the past time, when Atlantis first grew as a power, appeared there one with the key of wisdom, showing the way of light to all. Showed he to all men the path of attainment, way of the light that flows among men. Mastering darkness, leading the man-soul upward to heights that were one with the light. Divided the kingdoms, he, into sections. Ten were they, ruled by the children of men. Choose he, the three from the highest, to become his links with Atlantis. Messengers they, who carried his counsel to the kings of the children of men. There, in the circle from aeon to aeon, sit the great masters, living a life not known among men. There, in the halls of life, they lie sleeping. Free flows their soul through the bodies of men. Time after time, while their bodies lie sleeping, incarnate they in the bodies of men. Teaching and guiding onward and upward, out of the darkness, into the light. There, in the hall of life, filled with their wisdom, known not to the races of man, living forever neath the cold fire of life, sit the children of light. Times there are when they awaken, come from the depths to be lights among men, infinite they among finite men. He who by progress has grown from the darkness, lifted himself from the night into light. Free is he made of the halls of Amenti, free of the flower of light and of life. Guided he then by wisdom and knowledge, passes from man to man, to the master of life. There he may dwell as one with the masters, free from the bonds of the darkness of night. Seated within the flower of radiance sit seven lords from the space-times above us. Helping and guiding through infinite wisdom the pathway through time of the children of men. Mighty and strange, they, veiled in their power, silent, all-knowing, drawing the life force. Different, yet one with the children of men. I, different, and yet one with the children of light. Tablet 2 Toth is already a king, a priest, and a prophet much like Jesus. Therefore Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. John 18.37 So, will we ever get this great leader, this Philosopher King Only time will tell this story Let me know what you think in the comments below Thank you for listening
See you next time, mortal. Remember to hit that bell button to stay notified. Subscribe for more Red Pill content. Do give it a like if you enjoyed it, and feel free to share it. If you want to support my work, you can find me on Patreon at Library of Gnosis. You can find me on YouTube, Facebook, and BitChute at Library of Gnosis. The audio versions of my broadcasts are available on Spotify as a podcast at Library of Gnosis.